0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you. I'm very glad that I did not get a speeding ticket on my way over here from from the north campus. This has been my tightest transition yet, but I, I did just fine. I'm glad to see you on this day. I want to remind you that we're in part two of my sermon series, The Conspiracy of Hope Living Beyond Fear. We mentioned last week that that word conspiracy is a little bit surprising to see in a sermon title on a Sunday morning with the idea of hope being talked about. But at its root, that word conspiracy comes from a Latin word that means to, to breathe together. And so we're playing with it with the idea of here we are meeting behind closed doors in these sacred walls, behind these sacred walls, to conspire, to breathe together ways we might bring hope into a world that is desperate for a good word like this. So we will continue on in this series, but if you would please take a moment to pray with me. Good and gracious God. Give us the courage we need to face our fears and help us to open our minds and our hearts that we might not only receive this word, but welcome it. That we might not only understand it, but practice it. This is our prayer together. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. I learned several years ago of a church that Fred Craddock, the old preacher, used to say, had lost its amen. They'd lost their Alleluia. They were tired, tired of preaching, tired of singing, tired of praying, exhausted, frankly. Their ministries, whether it was Christian education or youth, whether it was pastoral care or something else, had really just fallen on hard times. Their attendance was in serious decline. Their offerings were way lower than they used to be, especially back in the good old days, you know? Fred said they'd lost their amen. They'd lost their hallelujah, they'd, they had no energy left. Something similar could be said about the church of the Hebrews. We don't know exactly who those folks were, whether they were a group of Jews living in in Rome or whether they were folks in Jerusalem or somewhere else in the Mediterranean, but we know this. We know from the writings of this preacher, and it might have been a woman, by the way, who wrote this text. Again, we don't know for sure who wrote it. But whoever he or she is writing to, their church, their congregation, they're exhausted. They're worn out, lifeless. Tom Long, a New Testament scholar, says that they they were not in danger of doing the wrong thing because they had no energy to do anything. They were just fading, fading away. And so, what does that preacher do? Well, if it had been me, I would have been very tempted to go to the latest seminar on church growth. I would have been—I uh, would have looked up everything I could on how to increase your offerings and done all the studies and read all the books and done all that kind of work. If it, if it had been me, if it had been me, I might have been really tempted to try some gimmicks. You know, make sure everyone knows we have the best coffee in town and homemade cookies. Now. I'm not opposed to that idea, by the way. But gimmicks for gimmick's sake never work. I, I have a buddy who, at the end of a capital campaign, brought the crane back onto their campus that they'd used to replace the tower in their, in their church building on their campus. And then he, on that Sunday, preached from that crane, from way up high above the congregation, all gathered outside. A couple weeks later, I said to my friend, why did you do that? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> you see, gimmicks, gimmicks don't work. We, we have to be careful that we don't just do something silly, hoping that it might bring a couple more people into the pews. This preacher, this writer of the letter, and really it's, it's a sermon to the folks in the Hebrew church, this preacher does something counterintuitive. He dives deep into theology. He dives deep into the stories of their Bible, which would have been what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He tells them the stories of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Jacob, of of King David and Moses and all the prophets to remind them of all the struggles their people had faced before and the way they had encountered these various trials and tribulations and how their faith, even in the midst of the darkness of doubt, had been rekindled and set aflame again. He speaks a word out loud for a church that's tired of sermons, for a church that is worn out and exhausted in order to encourage them again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. In other words, faith goes hand in hand with hope. Faith is not just an inward feeling, it's also countered with hope in that it becomes an outward action. This hope powers the faith that then, as we like to say these days, walks the talk. Maybe you've seen it before. I've seen this happen. Several years ago, I was leading a youth trip to to Mexico to build homes with a group called Amor Ministries. We were going to build homes for the poorest of poor uh, right near the border town of Tijuana. Have you ever heard of this kind of work before? (laughs) I think you might know about this. Well, this was several years ago, and this this youth group that I was leading, they'd never been to Mexico, most of the kids hadn't, and they'd never been on a work trip at all, a mission trip at all. And so we spent the six weeks prior to going on this this excursion uh, training them about what to expect in Mexico, the culture, that sort of thing. We talked about the daily schedule, early morning breakfast, morning watch, work all day, come back and have a nice dinner uh, at the campfire there, and then have a campfire service, an evening campfire service. Talked about that, and then we also looked at the the teachings of Jesus on caring for the least these we listen to voices from the Old Testament like Amos and Micah who call us to go to the the people on the margins the people who have been marginalized push aside forgotten the poorest of the poor and to serve with and among them there was one kid though in all these training sessions who just he just sat he sat right there in the front row just kind of had his arms folded and just sort of sat there just going ah, whatever his name was Mark I called up Mark's mom after a couple of weeks of sighs and whatevers and said, is Mark okay? And she said, well, he's getting an F in Spanish and, and as, as punishment, we're sending him to Mexico with you. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, thanks. By the way, moms and dads, you, you probably know this, using church as a punishment for your kid is not a good idea, That's just, just so you know. I'll, I'll preach that sermon at another time though. Well, but here's what happened. We got to Mexico and within a day, Mark had flipped. He was up early the second day at breakfast, smiling, talking to people. He got involved in the morning watch, the prayers for the day. He worked hard on the work site. He became a leader at the campfire service at night. He was totally into the whole thing. He couldn't believe how great it was. At the end of the week, after we'd built three homes, had our closing service on a Friday night. We left early Saturday morning, drove across the border, went to Disneyland, and spent the whole day at Disneyland to celebrate the great work we'd just completed. Mark and some of his friends were sitting around one of those, uh, those uh, places at, at, at restaurants in, in Disneyland, you know, where you get a burger that's like $87. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he was like, he just said, Glenn, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't, just sit down for a second. I don't understand. Why didn't you talk to us about this before we left? This is an amazing experience. I mean, working among the poor and serving and listening to God's voice and being with each other. Oh my gosh, I couldn't have had a better week. I just, I said nothing. I just smiled because Mark had rediscovered that what he thought was gone was still there. It's the same thing this this preacher to the church of the Hebrews wants them to find. It's not just in feeling good. It's getting out and moving your feet and using your hands and your brain and whatever you've got to bring hope back into the world. Tom Wong, who I quoted earlier, says, faith sings we shall overcome, hope marches on Selma. Faith sings, hope marches. Speaking of King, you may remember that when he was in Montgomery, Alabama to lead the Montgomery bus boycott, he received over 40 death threats. One night, after a long planning meeting, getting ready to put the boycott in place, he sat down on his kitchen table and the phone rang. He picked it up and the voice on the other end said, you show up tomorrow, we'll kill you. You're dead. He hung up. He couldn't sleep. He sat there at that table all night. Somewhere around 3 a.m., he prayed out loud and confessed his lack of courage. He confessed his fear. He confessed that he did not want to die. He confessed that he couldn't take this anymore. And out of the silence, he heard a voice, an an inner voice that said, Martin, I'm calling you to stand for justice, to stand for righteousness, to stand for truth. And I will be with you even unto the end of the world. And that voice, Martin later said, he knew was the very voice of God. Perhaps you recall his brilliant speech, I Have a Dream, it's an iconic, an iconic speech, an iconic scene, him there uh, in, in Washington DC with hundreds of thousands of people gathered around. But for my money, that's his second best speech. The finest sermon he gave, the most brilliant sermon I, I've ever encountered from, from Reverend King was one that people called the mountaintop speech the mountaintop sermon. It was delivered in Memphis on the night before he was killed, before he was murdered. The sanctuary was just jam-packed. The balcony was overflowing. There were people sitting everywhere, seated in the in the aisles, up on the chancel, all around him. You can go online and find this speech. It's a, it's a brilliant, powerful speech. When he gets to the end, and I'm going to read his words, when he gets to the end, it's amazing how the Word of God speaks through him. We've got some difficult days ahead, he said, but it really doesn't matter with me now because because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind like anybody I'd like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and God's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you but I want you to know tonight that we as a people we will get to the promised land so I'm happy tonight I'm not worried about anything I'm not fearing any any man mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then he collapsed into the arms of his friend. The next day, a bullet took his life, but it didn't take his voice. It didn't take the movement that had captured a nation and continues to challenge us even in this day. This preacher to the Hebrews, he knows that what Martin was doing there was called preaching through fear. That's the power of hope. When we let hope catch a hold of us, there's nothing that can stop us. Oh sure, oh sure. Great leaders from across the centuries have been taken down by madmen, by assassins, by evil, but their voices, their words, their work continues even now. What this preacher to the Hebrews wants us to see and to keep in mind is the vision of these are David White's words, the vision of far off things. He wants them to believe in the future of God. I love that phrase, the future of God. I can't remember the scholar that said it, but I heard it in a lecture years ago and I've always loved it, the belief in the future of God. He wants them to see that the way we live matters in the here and now. He wants them to realize that their church will be enriched when the forgiveness and the grace and love of God is revealed in their congregation. That's a risky thing, though, to depend on grace, to allow love, and faith, and hope to guide us. Sometimes, sometimes, when we're full of doubt, we can forget about the love and the grace and all that nurtures us. There was a time a couple of years ago when I was faced with some work at the church I was serving that was really just kind of bringing me down. I wasn't sure exactly how we should approach it. And I was a little concerned about about how this would get done, and I wasn't feeling very confident in myself and my own my own work and abilities. And so I sat down with Julie one night, my wife Julie one night at the dinner table, and I didn't tell her about the struggles I was facing. I just tried to kind of go in the side door to see if I get a pat on the back, you know? So we're just out of the blue. I just looked at her and said, "It's kind of a dangerous question, Julie." Why did you marry me? Yeah, I told you it was a dangerous question. She looked at me and out of the silence, she said, I do not know. (laughs) Well, great. Thank you so much. And then she said, wait a second, just be, just be quiet. (laughs) I married you, she said, because I fell in love with you. Isn't that enough? I was looking for a pat on the back. I got something better. In that moment, grace and forgiveness and love were made real. And whatever it was I was wrestling with, with folks at the church, we were going to wrestle through and get by and get on and it was going to be fine. The best marriages, the best congregations always need grace, forgiveness, and love to be real. It's a risky thing, though, I'll tell you that. It's risky if we start, if we start letting this love guide us in everything that we do, if we start letting God's grace define who we are, it can be, it can be risky and it can lead to some change there was a Baptist church that, like the church I was talking about earlier, was going through some decline. Their offerings were, were lower, all the same kind of similar problems. And so they, they got together with their leadership and they had a conversation about what can we do? And they said, well, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who aren't coming to church. Let's go out into the highways and the byways. Let's go out to the folks that, that don't normally come to church, you know, some of the rougher ones, and let's invite them. Let's, let's put an outreach program in place and tell everybody, we got a great church. Come join us. And you know what happened? They did. These folks who didn't dress like they did, who drank too, many of their, too much of their favorite beverages on a Saturday night, who smoked a lot and lived in ways that maybe perhaps good church folks wouldn't necessarily live, and they started showing up in church, and it kind of bothered the church folks. And so the leadership said, boy, we need to talk about this. What are we going to do? They were really concerned. And so they hired this professor from the local seminary to come in and talk to them about grace and how to be gracious with these new folks who were coming in into their congregation. At the end of his series of lectures with the leadership, there was a Q&A time, and this sweet little lady, she stood up and she said, Professor, Professor, don't you think though that they should clean up their act before they come to church? And Deb's wincing already. This professor looked out there and said, Lady, let me tell you something. If you want a church where not everyone is welcome, where you got to be cleaned up and dressed up and looking perfect and right and have everything all okay in your world, there's plenty of churches out there right now that you can attend in this city and around the country. But where's the church going to be? Where will we be able to find the church that will welcome the whiskey-drinking, chain-smoking, child-neglecting SOB? place went quiet. It's a good Baptist church. They never heard talk like that in church before. But the way in the back, this old elder, this old deacon in the church, this Baptist guy stands up and he says, Professor, are you talking about sons of Baptists? <laughs> yes, yes, even Baptists are welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. But think about this, honestly. In a few moments, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. And, and by the way, if you notice me reading the words, it's because for 50 years of my life, I've said the Lord's Prayer by saying the words debts, not trespasses. So I, I just want to make sure I say the, the, the right words. Although I said this at the 9 o'clock service, and I had several people come to me and say, we like debts over trespasses. So we're going to form a debts um, support group that meets over here in Brownlee Hall. That'll be later on uh, coming in the next, next month. But we'll also pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know we believe that. Are we ready for it? I know we believe we want God's will in heaven to be practiced here on earth. But are we ready? I'm, I'm, I'm sure we are, but, but sometimes fear gets gets in the way. There's an old Peanuts cartoon about a time Lucy was out in right field and a fly ball was hit to her. She's got her glove out. She's ready to catch it. The ball hits right in the middle of the glove and it bounces out onto the field. Charlie Brown runs out there and says, Lucy, what happened? She said, Coach, the past got in my eyes. Sometimes in the church, the past gets in our eyes. Sometimes in our houses, the past gets in our eyes. Have you, is there an old hurt that you're just hanging on to? Is there an old grudge you just want revenge for that you've been hanging on to from the past and it's blocking your ability to walk into God's future? Too often the past blocks. William Sloan Coffin, who's preached in this pulpit, was famous for saying, the opposite of love is not hate, it is fear. Fear blinds, holds us. Scott Pack who's also preached here in this congregation said that the reason for much human dysfunction is the inability to face trouble fear keeps us from naming what the reality is before us we're afraid if we say it, it might actually be true even if it is and so we avoid it and all kinds of dysfunction comes along but there was a preacher a Presbyterian Scottish preacher who stood up in a pulpit a high one like this on a Sunday And he looked at his congregation and he said, I've lost my faith. I'm overwhelmed by doubt. I'm confused by fear. I no longer believe in God. He then delivered an eloquent sermon on how he'd reached that place. At the very end of of his homily, he looked out at the people that he'd loved for years. He was in his early 40s, had been their pastor for a decade or more. A wife, two children, they were all loved by the people in the pews. And he said, I I, I cannot with any integrity continue to preach for you so, so darkened by doubt. I I no longer believe in God, and I must offer this as my resignation. He walked out of the pulpit and was seated to the side. Well, they stood to sing the closing hymn, but some of the elders, some of the board of elders were looking at each other and and pointing, and the, the chair of the elders kind of walked around and said, come on, come on, come on. And they went back in the narthex, and while the congregation was singing that hymn, they held a very quick meeting. And they all agreed and then the chair of the elders when the hymn was done walked up into the pulpit and he looked at their pastor and he said to him we do not want you to resign we want you to preach for us we want you to preach through your doubt we want to preach through and in your fear we will hold your faith for you we will hold it for you as long as it takes we love you and we care for you and we will now hold you with tears in his eyes he accepted their very gracious offer. One year later, he climbed back up into that same pulpit, and now this time with the tears streaming down his face, he looked at his people and he said, thank you for holding me. My faith has returned, he said, it's nothing more than just a flickering candle, just a little flicker, but it's been enough to see my way in the darkness. Sisters and brothers, The promise of heaven reminds us that we will never be left behind, even in our doubt, even in our fear and our worry and our anxiety. We will not be left behind or forgotten. The promise of heaven tells us that our faith will be strengthened by hope, empowered by grace, and confirmed with love. Let us, the children of God, gathered together in the community known as First Community, give our hearts and minds to this very God who loves us as we are and calls us forward into the future that God has set. Amen.